Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your mercy. We're so grateful for your word, for your gospel that tells us that you have done it all. You've paid it all. And you have actually, uh, through that same grace, invited us, broken pots uh, as we are, uh, to participate in your mission, to share your word. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have given to us in yourself and in your word. And we ask that that would come shining forth uh, this morning uh, through this teaching. Uh, we ask that you would bless this time and all those who have come uh, here to study your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, my friends. We are in 74 and 75, 73, 74, something like that. Uh, in chapter 74, 75, uh, in the E100 book, um, Acts chapter 8, and then chapter 10. Next week we'll go back to chapter 9 uh, and look at the conversion of St. Paul, that's Saul, from Saul to Paul. But today is good news to the nations. Last week we talked about uh, the whole Bible as a meta-narrative, right? Not just a collection of stories, but a single story, a common thread all the way throughout uh, Scripture from the very first page of the Bible to the very last page of the Bible, um, talking about how uh, a perfect God interacts with uh, imperfect people. Or maybe how can imperfect people have a relationship with the Holy God? And we talked about how all of the Old Testament is, and all that it's moving forward uh, towards all of... Um, salvation history is consummated and finds its answer in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts is really the story of people coming to terms with the resurrection. Uh, it is uh, rightly called the Acts of the Apostles. Sometimes it's called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, it, and all those things are right. It is the narrative of... Uh, it's like a gospel of the Holy Spirit. It's like um, where the gospel is sort of the biographies of, of Jesus. The Acts is sort of the, the biography or the story of how the Spirit begins, uh, which is now not just for uh, individual purposes at individual times, but for all people at all times. Uh, now, how do we take what we are given in the Holy Spirit and move out with... Um, and we see the, the... Last week we saw... Uh, persecution, the gospel causing a stir. Uh, we saw uh, Philip and John, I mean Peter and John, uh, brought before the magistrates because of the message that they were preaching and proclaiming. You killed him, God raised him. Remember that was kind of the pattern. We did not look much at the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr. Often, if you uh, go to a church called Saint Stephen's Church, there'll be a stained glass window or a statue or something like that. A, of uh, the apostle, or I guess he was the, the first, one of the first deacons, uh, the first, but he's certainly the first martyr, Stephen, on his knees uh, looking up into heaven uh, like this. That's sort of the, the typical uh, iconic uh, picture of Stephen. What happened with Stephen, I actually drew it, but I didn't bring it over. Um, what happened was the, the message went out. See, as you can imagine, people, Christians thought, oh no, they're killing people who believe what we believe. And so they took off they, out of town. Not the apostles. The apostles actually stayed, the leadership. But the, um, 
but the sort of everyday Christians, many of them, but they took their faith with them. They didn't run from their faith. They didn't disown their faith. And they went out away from the persecution and took their faith with them and continued to proclaim the message uh, of Jesus. So what we get uh, today actually is all along the coast, the Mediterranean coast. Gaza is sort of in the southern part. So let's see if it's facing you. The Mediterranean, Jerusalem's over here. Gaza, Azotus, Joppa, Caesarea, all along the coast. If you know about Jewish history, the coast, uh, the sea was seen as evil. It was unknown. I mean, there were definitely people who, who um, uh, there were sailors and boats and, and all those sorts of things. But, uh, but it, was, it was the great unknown, and it was to be avoided. Uh, and so, it, mostly Gentiles lived uh, along the coast. Uh, the real estate value was very good then, I, I suppose. Um, so, what we see that, um, that what we saw at Pentecost is that, that people from all over, from, people from all over the world, all over the, at least all over the Roman world, uh, received the message of the gospel. They were in town for the Pentecost festival. And then they went back home. And so they, several churches that Paul writes to, or t- at least two anyway, were not planted by him. They were planted by probably these people who were uh, at Pentecost. So the message is getting out. But today we see um, some, some very, uh, the, sort of the, the consequence of this persecution is that people were taking, uh, taking their, their faith with them uh, out uh, away from Jerusalem. You remember Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Samaria, and then in Judea and to the ends of the earth, right? So it's, it, it's, this is what's happening, just what Jesus said was going to happen. So two passages today about the, the word getting out. Uh, we have Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. That's in Acts chapter 8. And then uh, Peter uh, meets with Cornelius. That's in Acts chapter 10. And he describes uh, it back to the leadership uh, in chapter 11. Uh, three years ago, when I launched the vision for the church, began our first sermon series on the vision. We'll start another sermon series on the vision today. Uh, but the first one, uh, we talked about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch because it is about the gospel going out. And in fact, it's about the gospel crossing all sorts uh, of boundaries right out of the gate. Philip would have been, um, uh, he was Jewish, he, was, uh, he would have been a family man, uh, as a man of the middle class, he was probably, I mean, he's wise and well respected in the um, growing Christian circles, but he was probably fairly uneducated, I don't think he was, uh, had been in the rabbinic schools or anything like that, he was, um, uh, but, so he was just an ordinary middle class man, and therefore a family man. The eunuch, not a family man. Um, but would have been a man of extraordinary wealth. Uh, he was in the court of the Ethiopian queen and king, and so he, uh, and as such, he would have had a whole staff, he would have had an enormous influence and power, and was a Gentile. He was a worshiper of the, um, of the God of Israel, it seems. What's interesting is that the Judaism, and I'm, I'm kind of skipping all over my notes, I think. But the Judaism uh, was always, as far as I can tell, uh, welcoming for those of other races coming in. But what is distinct is now Christianity is intentionally going out and open to everyone. 
So it's, an, it's, a, it's a sort of a different directional flow. And it's striking to me that these men of an incredible difference meet and intersect uh, at the point uh, of the gospel. Um, Christianity was immediately multiracial. And I just think that's really uh, been important. Uh, it's, um, they were not sought out because there were, they were other races. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a, um, uh, what's that pro, with the program? But, um, affirmative action. Yeah, what affirmative action? Like it was, uh, it was they, were, they were given the gospel because they were humans, right? They were sinners in need of saving, uh, in need of God's grace. Maybe they had been Jewish, maybe they had been pagan, maybe they had been nothing at all. They were simply seen as humans. The gospel was always uh, proclaimed to all nations. Remember Jesus said before he, was ascend- he ascended, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations, that's right. You know, you think about how important this is. Well, for- first let me, um, let me read the passage. I'm not going to read the whole passage of Philip and, and Cornelius, but I, I, this is uh, short enough that I can read it. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he's headed to the coast, um, to the Gaza Strip. This is a desert place, and he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So, a man of, who had been entrusted extraordinarily. Um, he was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning. Seated in his chariot, it was probably like a covered wagon, uh, essentially. He wasn't driving the chariot. I've always, for years, I pictured this Ethiopian eunuch you know, driving his, his chariot like, a, like you see in the um, around the around the Colosseum in the in the movies or whatever, but it wasn't. It was like a covered wagon. Uh, somebody else. He had a driver um, at least, and so um, so he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, "Go over and join this chariot." So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and asked, "Do you understand what you are reading now?" In those days, uh, it, it was all handwritten, obviously. And if you, have you ever like, seen something that was just kind of in, in chicken scratch? It's much easier to read it out loud. Like, wait, no, what is this saying? Um, so, so, and it was very common uh, then, as I understand it, as I have read in the, the scholars, it was more, much more common for people to read out loud than it was to, for them to read in silence. And so, Philip immediately recognizes He's reading from the prophet uh, Isaiah. And uh, the Spirit says, Go join him. Do you understand what you're reading? He said, How can I? How can I understand unless someone guides me? And so he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, there's just as it is remarkable that Philip is going to this man, it is also remarkable that this man invites Philip up into his chariot. And so the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? 
for his life is taken away from the earth. Do you know what that passage is in, in Isaiah? You heard that? It's the suffering servant. It's Isaiah chapter 53. We read it at, on Good Friday. And I want to go back and read uh, some more of that passage just to give you a context. More than likely, I mean, maybe the, the eunuch was reading just uh, that, those verses, but more than likely, they, the two of them, as they sat in the chariot, looked at the whole uh, chapter. Um, and it is, and to think that this passage was written 700 years or more before Jesus astonishes me every time that I've read it. Every time that I have read it. Who has believed what He has heard from us? And, who, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him, and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It's Isaiah's suffering servant. And Isaiah wouldn't have been able even himself to envision Jesus or the crucifixion. Or perhaps that the Messianic King that Isaiah had also referred to in his earlier prophecy would be the same as the suffering servant in his later prophecy. And yet those things are coming true in Jesus. What better passage could the eunuch possibly have been reading for Philip to come up and talk to him about the crucified and risen Lord? Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before his, its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. It always amazes me that when Pilate spoke to Jesus and asked him the question, that he stayed silent. Because if he had answered him, Pilate would have had to let him go, no matter what the Jews were saying. His silence was not conviction, although it did lead to his, his crucifixion. His silence was the protection of you and me so that he could die for our sins. So he reads this passage, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And they were going, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. Remember earlier, that little phrase that said, this was a desert place. They came to some water. How did that get there? I don't know. God put it there, maybe? Or maybe it was just a creek, I don't know. They came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came... This is a little bit crazy. 
And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. It's a really remarkable story. I'm sure there are lots and lots of things that we could talk about, not the least of which is the importance of sharing the gospel, and maybe we will talk about that in just a minute. But I want to say something just about our cultural moment. Because there has been a lot in the last couple of years. It seems in some sense to have died down a little bit, but as um, the shootings have um, around the world, but especially in our country, have, have uh, brought it to light. And that is this uh, idea of not just of racism, but of white nationalism. And, um, and I, I'm not speaking as if I think that there are any here who may, may be. I, I don't think so. But it just, we want to, as we look at our, we read the news and, and stuff, we want to see that, that a lot of times this, um, these white nationalists, these white supremacists, they, they seek to blend um, in some uh, appeal to Christianity with their whatever doctrine they have. Um, Think about this the shootings in uh, New Zealand, Christchurch, with um, against the Muslims in Pittsburgh, against the Jews, and uh, recently in El Paso against Hispanics. And I just, I mean, I just feel like as a pastor, I don't feel like anybody thinks that that's not wrong. But I just need to say how awful that is, and that is not the gospel. And I happened to see uh, a quote this week. I don't follow Beth Moore, and a lot of you ladies probably have done Beth Moore Bible studies, but I don't follow her on any social media. But I did see a quote from her on white, na- white nationalism this week in response to the El Paso shooting. She lives in Texas, and she, this is what she said. Any Christ, and Christ is in quotation marks, any Christ that can be invoked in support of white nationalism is a false Christ of the highest, most hellish order an antichrist, a wholly opposite Christ. No such Christ is the Christ Jesus of Scripture who taught His followers a love that sacrifices life and limb for others. Just really important that we hold on to that message. Um, what, what she is, is obviously saying is that people can say whatever they will about what Christ supports or what they do in the name of Christ. But that does not mean that Christ supports what they are doing. Um, it is easy, on a much, probably much tamer, more mundane level, to, to believe that Christ supports whatever it is that we're doing and to use the name of Christ to condemn others. Sometimes there is good and righteous judgment, but we need to be very careful about that, about invoking the name of Christ. I mean, think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is telling about the one who reflects uh, the love of God you know, and the love that we are to have for our neighbor. Who is it? It is, it is interracial, right? It is a Samaritan uh, who comes and cares for the man who has been beaten and bloodied uh, at the road. Jesus always reaches across uh, racial lines. Um, any... any comment or thought on that. I don't mean to get everyone into a tizzy and say, you know, uh, it, it's just it's just something I feel like I need to address, need to, need to say uh, out loud. Yeah, Josh. The part that always bothers my mind is, you know, we've all seen the picture of, you know, Jesus looking up and, you know, it's all glowy and everything, and 
brown heron in northern or western European features. White Jesus, yeah. Yeah, German Jesus, yeah, yeah. A Palestinian, you know, he was swarthy, he was, you know, he was darker skinned, he had dark curly hair. He was not the long, flowy, light brown, blondish hair. So, I mean, how, can you, how can you possibly use that person to support white, you know? I think, no, I mean, I think there is something to say, you know, to be said for Jesus, um, understanding Jesus as coming to us in, in, a, in the person that we recognize. Uh, I don't get all upset when I see black Jesus or something like that. I don't get all upset about that because I know he was a Palestinian man. Like, you know, he was probably about 5'7", big beard. I, you know, I don't know. But, um, yeah. And people in... Uh in every culture, usually in, in the art of every culture, people depict Christ as looking like themselves. Yeah. Right. 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 I mean, because we, what we want to do is, I mean, we're con- in that sense, we're conforming Christ to our image, but uh, let, let that, we can, on some level, let that be an artistic representation that we're conforming to the image of Christ. So, like I said, I don't get upset when I, when I see those things, but I do get upset uh, when people uh, do things that are obviously evil or against uh, Scripture and invoke the name of Christ and use, uh, use Christ to promote hatred. And, and that's why, in fact, people say religion is bad for culture and society. You get too much of that and you start doing stuff like El Paso or, or Pittsburgh. But the truth is, you haven't gotten nearly enough of the real Jesus. Not even, all you've gotten is the, is the spelling correct. You know, like that's, that's pretty much all you've got. The, the, the real Jesus is uh, said, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, the real Jesus loved his enemies. Yes, Katie. I think our, uh, one of our problems today along that line is that there are so many people who call themselves Christians but aren't. But those are the ones that media and whatever concentrate on. Sure. The ones who are just, quote, Christians. Well, true followers of Christ in his way. So Katie said that there are so many people that, that aren't true followers of Christ in his ways but call themselves Christians. I, mean, I will tell you uh, that I would never before the Lord want to be the one who determines uh, who is a real Christian and who is not. But um, Jesus did say you'll know them by their fruit. Now if they know me by my fruit, I may be in trouble sometimes. You know, um, um, Amy's nodding her head. But the... Um, the um, in her heart, she is. But the, um, um, but, and so we all need grace. Uh, and I don't mean I need a little, and the El Paso shooter needs a lot. Like I need all the grace Jesus will give me. But I hope, I mean, God forbid, that we invoke the name of Christ to um, to bless our evil. The Christians should constantly be turning to Christ for in repentance forgiveness, and humility. Um, for both Philip and then Peter in chapter 10, the gospel had captured their hearts in such a way that there was instinctively no boundaries. There were no outsiders. So uh, let's talk about Acts chapter 10 for just a minute. So um, it starts with Cornelius, who is... Um, uh, a Roman centurion, uh, a man of authority, and but he's a, a God-fearing man. 
and he is praying, and the Spirit appears to him and says, go get Peter, he has something to tell you. Uh, Cornelius was in Caesarea, a little bit north, and, um, and Peter was in Joppa, uh, in the home of another guy named Simon, Simon the Tanner. Now, if he was a tanner, he dealt with animal skin, so he was already a, a unclean. So uh, there, was some, um, there, there was some understanding, certainly, of Peter that he could reach out to Gentiles. Uh, and people who were not ceremonially clean, but um, uh, but he was uh, he was praying. Uh, Peter was praying in Joppa, and came into a trance, and um, and a in the in this vision that he got, this this uh, sheet is lowered down, and it contains all sorts of animals. And the spirit of the Lord speaks to Peter and says, "Rise, kill, and eat." And Peter says in this vision, uh, "Never." Lord, I've never eaten anything that was unclean. Now, you know that the, the Jewish uh, ceremonial laws and the laws for eating ha- had lots of rules about what you could eat and what you could not eat. You could eat a um, cow, cow meat, because it had a, a cloven hoof and it chewed its cud. Now, why that's the standard, I don't know. I don't, maybe maybe um, after I've been in heaven a few years, I'll get around to asking that question. But, um, but the, um, anyway, there was lots of things. There were birds you could eat and birds you couldn't eat. And all, uh, you couldn't eat the rock badger, you know, delicacy that it was. But the, um, the, anyway, you could... Um, and so Peter says, I wouldn't eat anything and, uh, that's not clean, according to Jewish kosher law. And um, God says, do not call anything common that I have declared clean. This happens three times. Three times to uh, reveal to us, the readers, and surely to Peter, how important it was. And as the vision sort of evaporated, the men from Caesarea knock on the door and say, Hey, is there a guy here named Simon Peter? And Peter comes down and says, I'm the one you're looking for. And immediately realizes what God was telling him is, Go with these Romans, these non-Jews. Do not call unclean that which I have declared clean. So Peter walks with them, takes them a, a day or so to get up to from Joppa up to Caesarea, and they begin. Peter walks in and he, they start worshiping him. They bow down because God has sent this man. And Peter says, "Get up! I put my pants on one leg at a time, just like you do." It's a loose translation, but he. Um, but then um, I'm not sure they wore pants actually. But anyway. Um, and then, um, and then they, they say, well, what do you have to tell us then? And he tells them about Jesus, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They begin speaking in tongues, just like uh, Pentecost. It's Pentecost all over again. So Peter baptizes them. And of course, you know, the, the Jewish Christians up in Jerusalem hadn't seen anything like this before, and they were like, what are you doing? When the word get, gets back, and he says, I mean, who am I to say, the Spirit fell on them just like it fell on us. Who am I to deny what God has created? And so they rejoice. Okay, then I guess the word goes to the Gentiles. Wonderful. Amazing. The gospel, the gospel captured their hearts in a way that instinctively there was no boundaries uh, for their pro- proclamation. No outsiders, no one to whom they would not share the gospel. I think that is extraordinary because the gospel is for all people. You know, for Peter it was the command of God. I guess really for Philip too, but for us it's the command of God because we have it in Scripture. Now, the voice may say, speak to you, right, that would be really cool, but more than likely the voice has already spoken to you in the, in the words of Scripture. 
Let me ask you this. Why does the gospel level the playing field? Since there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Why, why is that? Other than just that declaration. I mean, why, what, why does the gospel level the playing field? We're all created by God. We're all His children. It's for everyone. That was the point of God creating man was relationships. The 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 point of of, of our we are made to need relationships to be in relationships as God is in relationship Father Son and Holy Spirit we are made in His image. Okay, all these things are great. As God's word in the Bible, if we are if we're believers <clears throat> and we have all these examples in the Bible of people that were different and were brought by the Holy Spirit, then that's our example on how we should live. So Charlene said if we have lots and lots of examples of, of um, uh, people who are different believing the same thing, then that's our example. Did I say that right? That's our example. Yeah, that's There's also lots of examples in Scripture of the Jews saying this is not for anyone else. But that's the Jews. Right. So in Christ, it's you know, through your line, all nations of the earth will be blessed, right? Okay, good. Josh? I was kind of thinking the same thing, that it's kind of hit the reset button. You know, all this was blessed, and the Jews kind of forgot that part and moved away from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like saying, no, here, here clearly, no, go to after this is for everyone. Kind of reset button. Kind of hitting the reset button is, is for everyone. So those are all true. Let me, let me add this to, to the equation. The gospel levels the playing field because the gospel levels us. The gospel meets us all, black, white, brown, rich, poor, middle class, filed bankruptcy, hadn't filed bankruptcy, whatever, Lexus, Hyundai. It, all, it meets us all at our point of inadequacy. Right? All at our point of inadequacy. In our places of futility and failure, insecurity, weakness, grief, lost expectations, shame, Jesus says, I love you. Where the world would say, uh, would excoriate and shame uh, and admonish the word from the cross is the very heart of Christ. It's, I love you. And I've taken your sin. I, in fact, I love you to the point of my own death. And I am taking your rightful place on the cross because I love you. We are. Uh, as one preacher that I uh, listen to a lot, Tim Keller, you know Tim Keller, as he has said, but I think he's quoting C.S. Lewis and maybe who knows else, um, but that you are more sinful than you ever thought possible and more loved than you ever dared dream. The gospel levels us. So the gospel levels the playing field. And so we can come as Sinners saved by grace, with no pomp or circumstance or resume, but only the righteousness of Christ. And we can offer that uh, to the world around us. Uh, let me ask you this. There's a, a question uh, in the back. I don't know if you, if you have the book. The, um, in the back, there's some questions. Maybe it's a little late in the game to be telling you that. But um, the, um, some good study questions. Like if you are journaling, if you're using this for your devotion and journaling about it or something like that, um, Maybe you look at these questions, but it says this, Peter learned to accept Cornelius, someone very different, and not exclude him from fellowship in the early church. Do you think the church today is inclusive or exclusive? Why? What should it be like? 
denomination? Which denomination? Which congregation? I guess we should start with this congregation. But maybe you've had experiences in other churches where... You know, I've, I've, I've had experiences in churches um, in multiple denominations, I would say, that are exclusive in the name of inclusivity. <laughs> um, when I worship with my children that are both Catholic families, yes. and the priest says that all baptized Catholics are um, welcome to partake in, in, in communion, mm-hmm. That's excluding me, and right. I pretty much ignore that. Oh yeah, but, I, but that it just it yeah. hurts my heart when those yeah. words are spoken. Yes, yeah. Charlene talked about the um, the fact that uh, when she goes to worship with her family, and, and Catholics can't um, they're Catholic, and so she's not invited to take communion, uh, and how before the Lord and uh, all His glory, she does anyway. But um, they, um, which I it's fine to me. It really hurts. You know, interestingly, uh, I just heard uh, Trent say recently, that right before he came, he went to the World Youth Day, which is a Roman Catholic thing, uh, and it was in Poland, I, I believe. And Francis was there, Pope Francis. And, and Trent went forward. He was wearing his collar. But he, you know, he wears the Roman collar, not the good Protestant one that I wear. But um, the, um, <laughs> um, and so he went forward to take communion from Pope Francis. And somebody who knew who Trent was says, oh, no, 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 he's not Catholic. He's Episcopalian. And Francis said, I don't care, and gave it to him. Oh. Thanks be to God. And I said, you took communion from the Pope. What are you doing here? No, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really say that. Yes, kind. Mm-hmm. They fenced the community as well. Yeah, M- Missouri Senate. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it depends on the leadership of the church. Yeah. Because we were surprised that we were looking at churches. And I had a, a Missouri Senate different background. And I was surprised I went to Celebration Lutheran. And all you had to do was tell a priest, yes, I believe in Jesus. Pastor, yeah, yeah. And you can take communion. Yeah, I, I have a, another it's friend. So, so there are there are uh, certain denominations for sure that fence communion, and that feels exclusive to those who aren't in that that denomination. And 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 there are some tr- transgressions or defections or something, you know, sneaking behind en- enemy lines a little bit uh, at the at the rail. But um, but on the whole, I mean. The church is often seen as a an exclusive place by the culture, judgmental, right? And there's really no difference in the life from from a uh, a fundamentalist to an uber liberal. If you name the name of Christian to someone uh, of Christ to someone who is not Christian, it's just kind of all in the same pot, and they're. And they have why? Why is that? I mean, what? What is the? What? What is? Why is the church seen as exclusive? Yes, the beautiful lady in the back. What was your name? I think there's so many. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, that's true. Uh, so the, I think part of the reason is probably piggybacking on what Katie said, is that 
unfortunately, in the culture, like on the talk show or whatever it is, when they have, you know, this, if they're having a discussion and it's like an, a, an atheist person, a, you know, Muslim person, the, the person they usually have as the Christian person is not, you know, it, it's not the way that we want to be. Like there is some, you know, oftentimes who is depicted or who's on the news or who, whatever is the super judgmental, angry, super yeah. angry mm -hmm. you know, not the forgiving, humble, you know, loving, it's not, it's not that person. So I think that's where the culture's idea Comes from too yeah, I wish I'd thought of this uh, while I was writing down my notes because I would have gotten the quote just right. But I saw something by Rick Warren recently. He wrote Purpose Driven Life. And Rick Warren and I are miles apart on a lot of things. Uh, but he said something to the effect of our culture often says that in order for me to love you, I have to accept everything you do. And that's preposterous. Um, and, and he actually had a, a, another antithesis a, as well. But I just think that that's really important for us. To say that I love you is not to say that I love everything you do, but it's to say that I love you. I mean, Jesus, for crying out loud, doesn't love everything I do, but he loves me. And so it's to take that uh, message. Um, I, I think that that's really uh, important for, uh, for us to, to say. Yeah, Katie. Um, you, you asked when we started this discussion about what do we think about our congregation. I think... Most of us, at least, are very welcoming and, and believe that our job is to welcome everybody mm -hmm. and let the Holy Spirit and Jesus take care of anything else. Yeah, so I, I mean, to, to welcome everybody as, as our parish, to welcome everybody and, and to let Jesus take care of the details. I think we do a pretty good job of that. Yes, ma'am. Uh, where I am in uh, Virginia, we have a big burst of energy in the non-denominational young people mm -hmm. and, uh, church. They're getting members like crazy and they're just, you know, they have a yeah, and I'm not saying that the other churches are excluding them, mm -hmm. but for some reason they're not having the appeal uh, that's bringing in yeah. the groups and it's wonderful to see that all these people are just flopping. Right. Yeah. They have found a real uh, in, uh, sense of community and inclusion in those non-denominational. Thank you so much for those great comments, Mrs. Martz. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Martha Clark. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't take my name. <laughs> well, I think that's about it for the time that we have uh, today, and uh, I hope this is edifying to you. Uh, God bless you, and go to church, and then come back here for lunch. All right.